0: John, and we are looking in particular today at verses 9 and 10. My title for us this morning is, Can't We All Just Get Along? I want to share with you a very simple answer that might feel more complicated than it sounds when you're actually in the midst of conflict, and that is this. We will not ever all get along. And it takes some time to get to that point, that point of realization, namely the point that tells you that if you're getting along with everyone, you're the problem. Because you're shifting and vacillating between points and opinions. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6. He says, Woe to you! When everyone thinks highly of you, if everyone thinks highly of you, if everyone likes you, then you can know this for certain beyond a shadow of a doubt as a biblical truth. You're doing something wrong. Because if you hold to the convictions of the Bible, if you hold to the standards, the morals, and the ethic of Scripture, namely, if you walk in the footsteps of Christ as you are called to do as a Christian, a disciple of Christ, then you're going to rub people wrong. You're going to offend some people. You're going to encourage others, and you're going to confuse still more. Because the reality of the matter is is we are exiles here. This is not our home. We are sojourners, Peter says. And because we are not in our eternal home, we will, until we go to glory, upset some, confuse others, and so on and so forth. The reality of the matter is you and I We're in an interesting predicament. We need to love everyone that we come into contact with. That's what the scriptures teach us. That's not a negotiable point. But we also have to love them in truth. That also is a non-negotiable point. Now, some of us are better than others at the love, and still others are better at the truth. But the reality is we are called to speak the truth in love, and that takes practice. Amen? That takes practice. And we experience it in the public sphere, and, 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 and understandably so, because they don't believe what we believe. They don't hold to the principles that we hold to. So when you have a conflict with someone who is a non-Christian, as a Christian, it should be no surprise to you, but I want to turn a corner this morning and say this. What do you do when you have a conflict Not with a non-Christian, but with a Christian. How do you resolve it? Can it be resolved? If it can't be resolved, how do you move forward? Well, that's all I have for you today. If you come next week, we'll talk. No, just kidding. (laughs) I have two simple points for you today. and I want to talk about the order of authority and the order of unity. The order of authority and the order of unity. Having paved the way this morning for our two points in 3 John verses 9 and 10, look back at the text, if you would, please, shortly. John says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Whose authority? Our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against whom? us and and not content with that he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and put them out of the church let's begin with our first point this morning which is the order of authority the text begins with these ominous words look at it with your eyes it says i have written something to the church i think there's tone in that i don't think he's saying i've written something I think he's saying, I've written something. You better read it. I've written something to the church. Now, at the risk of sounding redundant, I want to reiterate a couple of things. First, John is the author of this epistle. Second, John is an apostle. He's been gracious and encouraging and instructional throughout these epistles. 1 John, 2 John, and now in 3 John. But he's done so with the common awareness, shared by everyone, of his apostleship. In church, with apostleship comes authority. Let me say that again. With apostleship comes authority. There's a number of scriptures that support this idea, and I want to share some of them with you. They're going to come up on the screen. There's one, two, three of them in particular that I want to share with you, although there could be many, many more. For the sake of this morning, let's look at these, the first of which is Matthew 16:19. Now, if you have a red-letter Bible, then you open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 19, and you see that these words are in red, which means, Who is speaking? Jesus. And Jesus is speaking to Peter and his disciples, apostles, in this case. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." This is not Jesus saying that they're in control of heaven. This is Jesus saying that his authority is being bestowed upon the apostles in so much that they walked with him, talked with him, lived with him, learned with him. This is a special group of men. This is a unique group of men. And Jesus is saying to them in this context that The law they lay down on earth echoes in eternity. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, synthesizes this idea succinctly. I like it. Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone, holding the structure of the church together. But the foundation of the church is built on whom? the apostles, and the prophets, Christ the chief cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, that word shepherd is poema, that is the word we get pastor from, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ. Now you'll notice in this numeration of offices, that there is a sort of decline here. It starts with apostles and prophets. Then it goes to evangelists. And then it goes to pastors, teachers. Apostles who have the authority given to them by Christ to go around preaching the gospel and establishing churches. Prophets who are bestowed by God with special revelation to preach a word that has not yet been shared after which evangelists take this word and go around sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and what God has done for sinners like you and me. But evangelists don't stay in one place. Evangelists travel. That's what they are by definition, itinerant preachers. They go around preaching in different locales, but while they preach in these different locales, people come to Christ, and, 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 and groups of believers need what? They need a church, and if they need a church, they need a leader, and therefore we have apostles and prophets and evangelists, and then we have the people that stay, pastors, teachers. So we have a sort of order to this authority. As a pastor of a church, I have some authority, but I don't have the same authority that the apostles did. We all are under the authority of the apostles, amen? So you see here, what we're going through in 3 John is important. The apostle John is saying, I have written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not recognize whose authority? Our authority. You see what's happening here, Obviously. Herein lies the problem. Diotrephes isn't recognizing the apostles' authority, which has been given to them by Christ himself, like Miriam with Moses so many years before in Numbers chapter 12. Diotrephes is saying, like Miriam did so many years before, well, God, can't, God can speak to all of us, can't he? What makes you so special Well, that didn't work out so well for Miriam and Aaron. And it's not going to work out so well for Diotrephes either. In order to understand the import of the idea of the apostolic office, there's a couple of things that I want to share with you. Three things in particular. When we're talking about the order of authority, which comes to us by way of the apostles... We need to know three things. Number one, an apostle was someone who was ordained by Christ himself. saw a flyer recently for a pastor's conference that was taking place, and it was pastor this and bishop that and apostle whatever. Yeah, I, first of all, I'm not going to that conference. But second of all, you should not go to that conference There are no apostles today. The apostolic office came to a conclusion with the death of John, who was the last living apostle. First of all, to be an apostle, you must have been ordained to the office by Christ himself. Secondly, to be an apostle, you have to have worked miracles for God's glory. You have to have worked miracles for God's glory. There's a lot of people on television who are working miracles, or so they say. But interestingly enough, it always is followed up with, therefore send your offering to. They're doing that for the glory of Benjamin Franklin, I think. Thirdly, apostles witnessed Christ post-resurrection. So we've got three criteria by which someone is an apostle. If these criteria are not met, then this person cannot, is not an apostle. I don't care what they call themselves or what their church calls them. The reality of the matter is, if you were not ordained by Christ himself... If you do not work miracles that point people to Christ, if you did not see Jesus after his resurrection, you are disqualified from the apostolic office. Sorry to burst your bubble. And interestingly enough, this is not something we're conjuring up here. This is not conservative versus liberal, Baptist versus you name it. This is scriptural data. So the order of authority here is based upon the fact that the apostles are a select group of people ordained by God for the leadership of the universal church. The apostles' teaching is the foundation of our faith. What we think and what we believe has come to us from God through the apostles. Let me say that again. What we think and believe has come to us from God through the apostles and prophets. We aren't free to make up our beliefs. We aren't free to negotiate our convictions. We aren't free to have so-called visions that digress from the revealed truth in Scripture. We are not free to say like Diotrephes. I'm not different from the apostles. In fact, I can decide when I follow them and when I don't. There is an order to authority in the church of Christ. As Christians, we are tied to a faith that is tied to the inspired, inerrant word of God which was authored by the apostles and prophets, we connect to convictions that are based on something outside of ourselves. They are what we called revealed. God's Word is His revelation of Himself to us that we might know Him that we might love him, and that we might serve him. This is what Francis Schaeffer meant in his book, He is there, and he is not silent. God has spoken, and his word to us is in this book. And he gave it to us by way of a special group of people, namely the apostles. But people come along, don't they? People always come along. People come along self-righteous and self-seeking, and they argue that they don't need God's revelation. They don't need God's order of authority, that they can sense the truth and feel it and discover it all on their own like diatrophies. They love to put themselves first. They love the recognition. They love the influence They love, as the King James Version puts this verse, they love to have the preeminence. This would not only include cult leaders, which is an obvious gimme, but it would also include preachers and teachers who use the Bible as little more than a platform for their own philosophy and aggrandizement. Sure, they can use verses here and there, but they only ever do it to serve their own agenda, to build their own brand, and not to make much of Christ. Let's remember what John said in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, John says, "'They are from the world, therefore the world listens to them. "'We are from God.'" Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth versus the spirit of error. I'll say this again there is an order to authority. Now, we live in a time when authority is frowned upon. The mere idea of someone possessing authority leaves a distaste in generations of people in our country and around the world. But God does not do things outside of order. God has established an order of authority. But not only has God established an order of authority, he has also, secondly, established the order of unity. The order of unity. Let's look at this again, secondly, the order of unity, which follows naturally, we might even say consequently, from the order of authority. In other words, we cannot have unity if that unity doesn't have a common source and a common ground. We say that again. We, you and I, or any other church or any other group, cannot have unity if that unity does not have a common source and a common ground. If we find unity in something, this, that, or the other thing, and it is not built upon the common source or the common ground of God's Word, inspired and given to us by the apostles, then that source of unity can shift, and there goes our unity with it. Let me tell you like this. Unity is merely an idea without a structure that measures and guarantees it. Unity is merely an idea without a structure that measures it and guarantees it. We see this unfolding in the world and around our country right now. They're using the word unity and equality like it means something that it doesn't actually mean. We're always going to find Areas of rub and friction here because philosophically Christians differ from non-Christians. Their source of reasoning today can be one thing and next week it can be another. Our source of reasoning has never changed. It has always been the Word of God. Without the authority that comes from the Word of God, division and chaos soon follow. We can infer this from the tone that John uses here in 3 John. Look at it again, if you would. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. This is where I want us to focus now. Verse 10. So if I come... I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense about us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to. And he puts them out of the church. Diotrephes, it would seem, from this text, is setting himself up as a leader within the church. Now, we already know because we have been through the third John for a few weeks now, that this letter is written particularly to someone else. His name is Gaius. And Gaius seems to be the man in charge of this church, but Diotrephes is causing division. Diotrephes is being divisive or divisive, uh, whatever your tomato, tomato. He's setting himself up as a leader in the church, but it's obvious from the tone of John's address that Diotrephes has not been invited to this position. He just thinks highly of himself. He's got a haughty spirit. He's arrogant. To the extent that John calls him out in the letter. Now, I'm grateful that I wasn't alive when the apostles were writing the New Testament. I don't know if my name would have been dropped into this ink. Maybe your name would have been dropped into this ink. You know, it could have gone one way or another. Amen? This guy shows up one time, and the only thing the Word of God says about him is, he really likes himself. He loves to put himself first. What a horrible testimony. Well, Diotrephes is setting himself up. He thinks highly of himself, so highly, in fact, that he's leading a group of people within the church against the word of the apostles. And there are a few reasons that we can think this way and a few reasons why something like this might happen. So let me give you a little perspective on situations like this. Say Amen if you're listening. This happens sometimes because the teaching in the church is weak. When the teaching in a church is weak, it fails to guide God's people in the order of authority. And when the order of authority is neglected, then weeds grow up among God's garden because they are given space to do so. This sometimes happens, not only because teaching is weak, but because leadership is weak. In the absence of a strong leader, someone will try to fill the void. If you don't believe me, try it in your house. Your kids who have been alive a third of the time that you have will suddenly become the wisest people in the world. And they'll start telling you, no, not now, I'll do it when I'm ready, and so on and so forth, because they're little sinners. This beautiful little baby is a little sinner. we got to pray for that little baby. We're all born sinners. And we all have the proclivity... Yeah, you better love on them kids. We all have the proclivity to go a different direction than the direction God wants us, designed us to go to, not because God isn't good, but because we have a disease called sin. This doesn't mean we don't love our kids, right? I mean, who could not love a baby? Who could not love a child? But we have to raise that child in the direction, in the instruction and admonition of the Lord, that God will reach that child... Through that instruction, and they'll become believers in the Savior, Jesus Christ. But we do that because there's order and authority. And we have been given that responsibility as parents, and it behooves us to fulfill it. Amen? We're not asking our kids what they think about our mortgage or our rent or our phone bills or anything else. That's our responsibility. It should be our responsibility. Amen. And we want our kids to be good. We want our kids to be great. That falls not on teachers or community leaders or pastors or whatever. It falls on parents. And the reality of the matter is that sometimes we see problems like this, the problem that we see with diatrophies, when leadership is lacking. Because when leadership is lacking, people rise up to fill the void. It also happens sometimes because we assume the best in people, and we end up getting the worst. This is difficult to say, and it might hurt your feelings a little bit, but I don't trust any of you. And I'm going to say something else. You don't trust me either. If you did, we wouldn't have bylaws to protect each other from one another, right? There is structure, there is an order of authority built into our organization to protect you from me and to protect me from you. The reality is, as I said before, we can love Jesus and still be radically imperfect. Amen? And we've got to protect God's church, which he loves, from people like you and me. That's why there is structure to protect the church in the event of me going awry or you going awry. Sometimes we assume the best in each other, but don't get the best. Sometimes we get the worst. It also happens sometimes when the order of authority isn't established and supported, and therefore the measurement and the guard of what is unity is lacking. I guess what I want to say is this. How can we be unified as a church in Christ, when we don't have an order of authority by which we can measure and guard that unity. You know, because I stick to the gospel and I do not negotiate on the word of God, that when you come here next week, we're going to do Third John verse 11. Now, there are other churches that aren't quite that way. You might go to another church in another area and walk in and be very surprised at what you hear and what you see. Because those churches are not following the order of authority. They forfeit the order of unity. They are not unified with us, and we are not unified with them because there are a few things that are non-negotiable to our unity. Let me share them with you. First, We are unified in Christ. Amen? In Christ, we are one. Christ is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's our peace. He's our salvation. He's our forgiveness. He's our all in all. He's our justification. He's our sanctification. He's our eternal security. Jesus is the first measurement. And if someone says, well, I believe you can be saved by Jesus, but I don't see why someone can't go to heaven some other way, we are disunified. We do not hold fellowship with people who do not hold the exclusivity of salvation through Jesus Christ, God's only son. First and foremost, all of these things belong to us, us Christians, unanimously in Christ. Not because of what we've done or what we've accomplished or what we deserve. Say amen. It's because God has been gracious to us and established for us a plan of salvation through his son alone, Christ's completed work on our behalf. And because we have this afforded to us by faith, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But anyone who calls on a Jesus who is different from the Jesus revealed to us by the apostles, is outside of our unity. Second, we are unified under the teaching of the apostles and the word of God. This might sound a bit redundant, but this is our focus today, that we are unified not only in Christ as Christians, but by the teaching of the apostles and the word of God. As I've already mentioned, there should be unity in the church because the church is getting its doctrine and conviction from the apostles and the word of God. Namely, there should be unity in the church because there is an order of authority. Christ is the head of the body of Christ and the apostles are his emissaries for doctrine and for teaching and for theology and for Christian practice. How do we know something is right or wrong or indifferent? Because of the Word of God. One thing that falls under this category is church life. Worship, discipleship, teaching, etc. I'm going to share with you some texts. You might want to write these down so that you can understand what I'm referring to as I'm going through this talk. Uh, are those scriptures up there, Eli? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Great. So let me just describe what these texts share with you as I go through them, and then I want you to feel welcome this week to go through them, make them your devotional material. Maybe you got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday there, and then Sunday we come back. Third John. Verse 11. So let me share with you some of these teachings that are given to us by the apostles that have to do specifically with church life. Say amen if you're ready. Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, we have taught to us church discipline and forgiveness. Church discipline and forgiveness. Church discipline is not an easy thing to perform. No one runs around kicking their heels saying, I got an idea. Let's discipline somebody in our church membership. Nobody does that. But church discipline has been given to us by Christ through the apostles for the unity of the church. If there is not a disciplinary program held by the church, then anyone and everyone can come whenever they want and cause division in our church. And that would not glorify God. So in Matthew 18, Jesus teaches us something about church discipline and forgiveness. Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we learn something about how decisions should be made in the church. In Acts chapter 13, we have a description of Paul's first missionary journey. And this is what's so amazing about it. It says, As they were together worshiping the Lord, praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, send Paul out on a mission. So we get an example there in Acts chapter 13 of how a church should be led. It should be led with prayer and fasting, and it should be led congregationally. This is why church membership is so important. Those people who went through our new members class just two weeks ago, if you went through our class, just raise your hand. Welcome. We love you. We're so glad to have you. Those of you who went through our new members class and those of you who have gone through our members class before, you know that we camp out on what I call the covenant of membership. And the reason it's a covenant is because you hold me to expectations. Amen? But it's also because I hold you to expectations. If we're having a fellowship here and we're enjoying ourselves and we say amen, we believe God's word and you're on your third affair, and you're over there at the sandbar getting drunk every Friday night, your membership here, at best, is going to be on probation because your confession is not lining up with your convictions. And your convictions matter to us. Amen? So when we say members only can vote, we say that because members have made a commitment. Now, if you worship with us and you're not a member, we love you and we're so glad that you're here and you're, and you're with us. But this is part of the rights that members have at our church. You get to have a vote. You get to have a say. And this is part and parcel of what it means to have a covenant with a local congregation. These are my people. I am with them and they are with me. Moving forward, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul teaches us how the Lord's Supper should be participated in. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Paul teaches us how a worship service should look, and he concludes it in verse uh, chapter 14 by saying, everything should be done decently and with order. Did you get that word? Decently and with what? Order. Order. 1 Timothy 4. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, who is a young pastor, how families in need who are part of the church should be taken care of. Monies are a big deal in the church, amen. How are they being dispensed? How are they being shared? That's a big deal. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul tells Timothy, this is what you are to preach. This is what you are not to preach. So in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and of course there are plenty of texts in the Old Testament as well, but in the Bible, we have a plethora of verses that teach us how to Church should be conducted. So if you go to some church that's just doing whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do, and in particular to fit into the climate of the culture and the day. I saw a recent, well, this was in the Herald, so I I don't, who reads the Herald? I don't know. I know my friend Ken Heglin reads the Herald, but that's just to exercise his anger issues. To keep his brain sharp. But I don't know if you read the Herald or not, and if you do, I'm sorry, but, but, but the Herald had an ad put out by an Episcopalian church that was encouraging people to come get baptized to start their spiritual journey. Beloved, no! This is not what baptism is. Baptism is done by those who have come to believe in Jesus as their Savior. And when they get baptized, they're demonstrating that they have been buried to their old way of life and that God has given them a new life in which they are to live to the glory of God. So when we baptize people, it's an exciting, we have a few people coming up soon that we're going to baptize. It's an exciting thing because that person who's being baptized is demonstrating their faith publicly to God and all those people who have been baptized just like them. We're not starting some spiritual journey here. We have to know what we believe and where that belief is coming from. Finally, we're unified in Christ. We're unified by the teaching of the apostles. These are examples of what I mean by that. And finally, we are unified in the ministry of the Spirit. One of the greatest insults to the Trinity, in my mind, is the fearfulness with which so many conservatives handle the doctrine of what we would call pneumatology, the doctrine of God the Holy Spirit, for fear that people who have a healthy and strong and robust theology of God the Holy Spirit will start speaking in tongues or rolling in the aisle. When The reality of the matter is that's not orderly. That's not decency. We don't see that in the scriptures. We don't see that in church history. That foolishness has no place in an orderly and decently conducted worship service that is engaged with the authority of the word of God for the sake of the unity of the body. It's a shame that God the Holy Spirit gets neglected the way that he does for fear that someone might say, I really sensed the presence and power of God the Holy Spirit today. We go, whoo. Oh, what do you mean by that? Explain what you mean by that. Well, the reality of the matter is we have for a long, long time believed in God the Father and God the Son and God the other guy. But we should believe in a healthy and robust Trinitarian theology that God is one. And yet, though God is one, he exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are three distinct persons and yet one God. You say, that's hard to wrap my mind around. Well, if you ever figure it out, you're wrong. It's not really meant to be figured out. This is one of those theological conundrums that we will always wrestle with, but with joy. But I bring this to your attention because, church, say amen. You and I, if we are in Christ, we have been baptized by God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit motivates us and convicts us and encourages us and calls us to ministry here and there and in other places always to the glory of Jesus. This is what John 16 teaches us. John 16 teaches us that God the Holy Spirit will never make a big deal about himself. God the Holy Spirit always makes a big deal of Jesus. So if you're ever in a place where they're just crying out to the Spirit to come and baptize them again, to give them some gift that is spiritual in nature this is unbiblical this is disorderly and this is against Christ 1 John chapter 3 verse 24 in 1 John chapter 3 verse 24 John says by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. If you are a Christian, you have been baptized by the Spirit. You have been guaranteed eternal life by the presence of the third person of the Trinity. You cannot be possessed by the devil because you are possessed by God. You cannot be possessed by the devil because you have been claimed by the Heavenly Father. What we know about Christian theology is that the Spirit glorifies Christ. He humbles Christians under that authority, guided by the Word of God, and he teaches them to obey his commands. I can't tell you how many times I sit in a counseling session or a phone call or I had a long diatribe back and forth through my DMs on Twitter this week with somebody who was really trying to flush out something that I said, and the issue is this. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't understand the things of God. This is Romans chapter 8. The flesh is never in agreement with God. The flesh is always against the truth of God. But if you have the Spirit of God, you may not understand everything, but you're going to be humble and accepting of the truth, even if it takes time for us to grow and mature, and we're all growing and maturing. Amen? What I'm sharing here with you is, in the case of Diotrephes, in the case of Diotrephes, we have something antithetical to what we know and expect in a Christian church. In other words, someone who says they are a Christian but can't help but glorify themselves and work against the grain that has been established by God's order of authority cannot do anything but detract from the order of unity. And that person must be dealt with. And that's what John is doing.